0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 7. I mentioned in the last episode that the genealogy at the end of chapter six serves as a sort of literary device linking these events with the promises made to the patriarchs. It also functions as an obvious transition marker. And so it is probably helpful to understand the end of chapter six and the beginning of chapter seven as one fairly thick hinge between two major sections in the book. Verses one to seven of chapter seven are part of that hinge. They are summative. They rehearse the main elements of the last section and prepare us suitably to engage the next section beginning at verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. We will notice as we go forward that in these encounter narratives, a sort of symmetry develops between Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron and Pharaoh's advisors. Aaron will be the one who physically performs the signs generally, which the magicians will then attempt to imitate, and that serves to put Moses and Pharaoh on a similar footing. Behind it all, of course, is the power of Yahweh, which Pharaoh will come to know all too well. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Here again, we encounter this potentially disturbing theme of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There are exactly 20 references to the state of Pharaoh's heart in this story. Exactly 10 of them directly attribute the hardness to an action of God upon Pharaoh, while the other 10 attribute it to Pharaoh's own essential character. According to the Bible, this is a both-and kind of thing. We are morally responsible creatures, and we make real choices for which we will be held accountable, and yet... At the same time, God is sovereign over the human heart and he exercises that sovereignty in such a way as to ensure the outcomes that he has ordained. That is complicated, but we see it here in the text and we see it all over the Bible. It will be useful here to note that the first two references to God hardening Pharaoh's heart are proleptic. That is to say, they are looking forward. God says, I will Harden Pharaoh's heart. But there is no actual mention of God taking the action he predicts here that he will take until chapter 9, after there have already been seven references to the pre existing state of Pharaoh's heart as hard or stubborn. So the fact that God does sovereignly act upon Pharaoh's heart in no way exonerates Pharaoh for being stubborn and hard hearted in the first place. Again, this is a very complicated issue, and I've written a longer reflection on this that you can find at the website. We also want to notice here that God's purposes in engineering this entire power encounter extend beyond the faith and understanding of the Israelites. He says in verse 5 that he intends likewise for the Egyptians to know that he is God. These plagues, thus, are a form of pre-evangelism, you might say. God is announcing that he is no mere tribal deity. He is a God over all people and for all people, as we discover later in the biblical storyline. And then lastly, in terms of this transition and preamble, we are reminded that God plays the long game. He begins working with Moses and Aaron at precisely the point that was generally celebrated in biblical times as the end of a long and unusually blessed life. When everybody else thinks you're done, that's when God is just getting started. As St. Augustine said, there is no human analogy for the divine sense of time. And with that, we're ready to enter into the next section of the text, most scholars identify this section as running from chapter 7, verse 8, all the way through 11, 10. Now, you might wonder why this section wouldn't be thought of as running all the way to chapter 12, verse 32, but the 10th plague is generally understood as standing distinct from the previous nine. The nine are a set. It is really nine plagues plus one. The first nine come in three groups of three, and they're all of a type. They are severe inconveniences, but they are generally not fatal to the human beings in the story. They are warnings, severe and escalating to be sure. But the 10th plague is absolutely devastating, and it is entirely decisive. And so it is set off from those that come before so 7, 8 to eleven, ten is a definite section. The theme of this section is the great power confrontation between God and Pharaoh, between the one true God and a legion of impotent pretenders. Pick up the story at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Several of the commentators describe this encounter as a sort of shot across the bow. It is a warning that serves to show the reader the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, and that served to show Moses and Aaron exactly what they were up against. Moses commands Aaron to cast his staff upon the ground and it immediately becomes a snake. This demonstrates the power of God over the natural realm and, by extension, over the so-called gods of the Egyptian pantheon. However, Pharaoh is looking for a reason to discount this display, and so he calls upon his magicians to essentially invalidate it. This they are able to do to a certain extent. They are able to make their staves become serpents, but their snakes are immediately swallowed up by Aaron's snake, indicating that the power at work through Moses and Aaron is significantly greater than that which is at work through the magicians. Now, several extra-biblical sources identify these magicians as Janus and Jambres. And in fact, the apostle Paul confirms that identification in 2 Timothy three eight, where he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, closed quote. Some of these extra-biblical sources go on to identify these men as the two sons of Balaam, uh, Balaam who will feature prominently later in this story, but the New Testament does not confirm that, so we can't really say for sure whether that is true. What we can say for sure is, is that they were able to work counterfeit signs and wonders and that this was used to confirm Pharaoh in his stubbornness and lack of faith. The New Testament warns us about this phenomenon. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 to 12 says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because... They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So according to the Bible, God permits certain false displays of power. He gives the devil some leash, you might say, to imitate certain signs and wonders in order to further condemn people who are not responding to the spoken word of God. Are you hearing that? Sometimes signs and wonders are a test. The right ones stir up faith in the word of God and the wrong ones confirm us in our stubbornness And willful delusion. Reader beware. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord... of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants... He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the first of the ten plagues. Having ignored the shot across the bow, That was the first sign performed by Moses and Aaron. God sends a plague now upon the land of Egypt. This plague relates specifically to the surface water in the land. We can see that in verse 24. People were not dying of thirst, but they did have to dig now for water from underground sources. So this was massively inconvenient, but not deadly. These first plagues are warnings which so far Pharaoh is ignoring. Now, as for whether this was real blood or just a dark red color, the text as we have it doesn't allow us to answer that question. In Hebrew, the same word is used for the color and for the substance. So we just can't say. What we can say is that this was no mere natural phenomenon. It may have involved natural phenomenon, but it obviously went far beyond what was normally associated with the annual inundation of the Nile. For one thing, it affected even the water that was already in people's buckets. So this is not merely a heavy wash of red clay from the southern reaches of the river. This is obviously a work of God. Now, we should probably say a word about these plagues in general. They are, on the one hand, a signal demonstration of God's wrath and judgment upon sin and idolatry. Like the flood in Genesis, or like the death of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, or like the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, this event says something about God's holiness and sin's wickedness. So these are judgment plagues. But they are also redemptive plagues. These plagues show the particular care that God has for his covenant people. And these plagues are the means by which God affects the redemption of his covenant people. So here, as very often in the Bible, judgment and mercy go hand in hand. These plagues are thus simultaneously a demonstration of God's character and an anticipation of the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. J. Alec Machier says helpfully here, Jesus died bearing our sins in his body on the cross, for that is what sin merits, and saving us from the wrath to come, for that is where sin leads. If the plagues begin with the disasters sin brings, they lead inexorably to the death with which sin ends. Justice and mercy commingle in the ten plagues of the Exodus, as they do in the blood Jesus shed upon the cross. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to In Of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at theword.ca You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post Daily encouragements and conversation starters, hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.